Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maleri and this is XJob Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Monique Rowling. Now, Monique is a former member of the police department and now she works in industry doing consulting uh, for, for companies and other organisations. But where did it all begin for you, Monique? And what was life all about? I think it began in the panic towards looming retirement is where it began because you don't start work. I mean, full-time meaningful work, most of us, or at least I did in my late teens. And so at in my early mid fifties, the idea of that coming to a halt was really overwhelming. And when I decided to retire, and there were a lot of circumstances around it and policing and, and those in this industry know that's not always Sometimes it catches you by surprise or sometimes it's, you know, the, the series of events. And so I didn't really have a plan and I had to think of one pretty quickly. Right. Come up with something. And I didn't I knew that I didn't want to walk into another organization where I had to um, fight for a seat at the table. So I wanted to do something independent uh, I just didn't know exactly what. <laughs> so wh- where were you born? My father is uh, French-Canadian. My mother has a back. She's, well, we are quintessentially Canadian uh, by many, many generations. Um, I live in a small city called Sault Ste. Marie, which is in the centre of the Great Lakes on the U.S. border. I was born and raised here, and I got into policing here. And I was a police officer with my own municipal service for 32 years. And how was that then? So, and what was the inspiration for you to join the police department in the town that you you lived in? Well, there wasn't much inspiration. I had no, unlike a lot of my colleagues, had no. I didn't aspire to be a police officer. I was actually a paramedic uh, at the time, and this is um, you know mid 80s, and. Because that was a fairly new profession, a lot of um, uh, I was kind of overqualified for the work I was doing. There was a lot of contract work. So I always had I've always had a second job, always had a gig on the side. And I I got a contract teaching CPR and first aid to the police department. Wow. And uh, I was working on the local ambulance service. I was driving three hours to the next city. That's what it's like here uh, to work on the helicopter. Uh, and they were saying, you know, you should apply here. We're hiring 10 people this year and, and, you know, uh, it would be a really great job. And I thought I just started this career. I don't want to be a cop. And my father, who is a 30 year steel worker at one point said, you know, the pension is much better. You should think about being a police officer. <laughs> and sure. as I was 21 years old. I didn't know what I wanted for breakfast, much less what I wanted for the next 30 years. But as I 
started working closer around first responders with the police, uh, I thought, you know, this is worth a shot. Fantastic. Which is unlike the other recruits who, you know, were really knew what they wanted. And so I applied and, uh, and was on the job within three months. And I never looked back, although I still continued to be a paramedic on my days off. So I did work two jobs Wow. for about five years. Yeah. So you're on the Great Lakes. So am I going towards London and Detroit and that? Straight north. Straight north. Detroit. Straight north. So where the three big Great Lakes join, and you can spot that on any map. Yep. That's right. Yeah, that's where I am. Beautiful. I'm very interested in, in politics and especially around policing. And, of course, you've got Detroit, which is just across the, the water, if you like, which has a horrendous record when it comes to homicides. Yes. But that's not replicated just across the borders. No, not at all. And I live, I can see the United States from my downtown of my city. So I live on the U.S. border. Right. Um, it is a 10-minute drive. It is nothing. Politically, uh, a criminality, even our culture, even though we look the same, we sound a little bit the same, uh, our culture is quite different. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't have guns in Canada readily? That's, that's the difference. So you cannot own a, a gun for personal protection in Canada. And we're very much like the UK with our gun laws. Yes. And so that is a significant contributing factor to a lot of our uh, gun crime. That said, it's obviously on the rise and you can get guns and we have the largest unprotected border in the world. So they're becoming more and more readily available. But there, we know that going into every home, someone doesn't have a handgun in their hand. That's changed. I mean, there are lots of long guns and, you know, we do have a outdoorsy culture, but if you're in, you know, into a metropolitan city, we're just not facing the same um, risk. And, and I suppose if you arrive at a scene and somebody's got a gun in their hand, which isn't a long gun that's been used for hunting rifle or anything like that, then they automatically become a suspect because they're illegally holding a gun in the, in the high, on the highway or at, Oh yeah, you. It's we have pretty strict laws even for storage, and you can't store a, a long gun with ammunition. So we have relatively strict gun laws in comparison to others, particularly the U.S. Yeah. And so I think that you see the impact, you know, with our our crime statistics for sure. When you joined the police, how many women were in the police department that you went to? Very few. Very few. There were no women leaders. Uh, in fact, I didn't. I was uh, promoted to inspector, so we have limited ranks because of our size. So that would be a division commander level, and I was the first woman in senior command in 150 years wow. of history in that service. And so there weren't many women. I'm going to say probably around 10% at the time. Um, certainly no women leaders. For many many years, and and those women leaders never really made it past sort of that mid-level sergeant manager, um, and so really no no examples of female leadership. And what what year did you join? Nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah, so I did I did as well, and I was twenty-one. 
So, and the world was completely different then, wasn't it? I mean, it was uh, yes, the, the culture and everything else, and I call it the MTV culture, but sort of has taken, <laughs> yes. has taken over the world, certainly in, in the UK. But what was that like? Because you're going into a police service where you've probably got people that joined the service in the early 60s. Yes. What was that like as a young female going into what would have been then a male-dominated environment? In retrospect, at the time I really didn't know any different. But in retrospect, I can't believe the uh, behaviors that I was subjected to in comparison to now. And the, and also, I was a 21-year-old kid, so out there telling people what to do and trying to solve the world's problems, of, <laughs> which is ridiculous when you think about it. But, you know, traditionally, the youngest officers were paired with the oldest officers, the yep. most senior. And you, I know we had coach officers, but I'm sitting in a cruiser in the middle of the night with, you know, a fellow who's in his almost 60, who's been, poli- I have, we have no, we have nothing in common. No. And... Yeah, the the behaviors, the attitude. I had a, an officer said, "You're wasting my time. I don't know why I'm working with a woman. Um, what good are you ever going to be to me?" Um, just that kind of attitude, and it really forms your whole career because that messaging: "You're not good enough. You have to work harder. Uh, you're you don't belong." That that might not be that overt as it was maybe in 1987, but that messaging, and I'm not alone in my opinion, I have a lot of senior female colleagues, but that messaging carries along your whole career. I, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think it's more, I mean, I was, I was 21 and I tell this story. I remember going around to this guy's house and he's had a domestic argument with his wife. <laughs> And there I am trying to tell him how to run his life. And, I, you know, a serious girlfriend was somebody that I've been with for about three weeks. You know, that was, that was as good as it got. And What did we know? And we wanted to help people and to be so shocked when they weren't receptive. <laughs> like, what? we didn't know anything. Who knew? I mean, it was, it was, it was bonkers, really. But it was a great grounding because it, it formed yeah, the, we are the people we are now because of what we did in the police service. Of course. And I think my my views are more polarised because I now have a granddaughter and I believe – I believed in fairness anyway. I was always – one, but I'm now at a point where I think, do you know what, she can do anything that she wants to do because she can, you know, that's and she, yes. and she should have opportunity and I believe that people should have opportunity. And I, I think, you know, you do earn respect and if you, if you, if you do work hard and people value you, you, you aspire to be – you know the the governor, the boss of the the station, and and that's and and that's absolutely right. But what types of crimes would be dealt with within your police department? Everything, everything, and I've worked everything from drugs to major crimes, homicide, child abuse, everything. So there is we're a municipal police service, but because uh, we're geographically isolated, I mean this is Canada. The next city is three and a half hours one way and eight hours the next. Wow. So, well, that is, we are, that is the geography. So we become, although there is provincial police in Canada and they, they police a lot of the rural areas and they support municipal police services when our um, resources tend to get overwhelmed. We had uh, five homicides in five weeks when I was working in investigations. We just didn't have any more bodies. 
So to front load those types of major crimes and some of the equipment and extra forensics would be um, uh, Ontario Provincial Police would assist us. But no, you're an independent, you're a city, you are everything. And we wear a lot of hats. Uh, although I was in investigations for many years, I was a crisis negotiator for over 20, working with tactical and and those types of calls. And you had to be very flexible in your skill set. So no, we geographically, we where I live, don't have um, uh, the neighbours to rely on. Well, the cavalry aren't just around the corner. What about the RCMP? Do they have people attached to you or nearby? RCMP doesn't uh, do municipal policing in Ontario. Right. So uh, RCMP supplies municipal policing or supportive policing uh, outside of this province. However, there there is a detachment in my city. Um, they focused more on um, uh, border crimes uh, and some of the other uh, federal crimes. But no, they weren't a supportive uniform branch that uh, assisted at all. Wow. And what about train? I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated the fact that you're so far. <laughs> if you're eight hours from one city and three and a half hours from the other, what about you know the infrastructure around training as a, as a, a police officer training? How does that how does that work? Well, in Ontario, which is the biggest province, so we have well, I don't know twelve million people or something along that line. Uh, we have one police college in this province, so most of the provinces are provincial. Some of the smaller, less populated provinces, not so much. So in Ontario, the Ontario Police College meets the standard for training. So every recruit goes to the Ontario Police College for their recruit program. And then they consistently run senior courses uh, nonstop. So even though I am an eight-hour drive from the police college, uh, if I'm a forensic investigator, then I would take my course there, five weeks or a fraud course or a warrant course or some homicide or some of those senior levels training is uh, most of it's offered through the Ontario Police College. There is some training through the Canadian Police College, which is run by the RCMP in Ottawa. So there's programs, uh, those seats are uh, limited because they're for the whole country. But yes, there is regular um, training and, and the new police act that's coming in this year actually stipulates what training has to be supplied by the police college. That's interesting. And, and how has the, the tilt towards diversity impacted on policing in, in Canada? Because when we joined in 87, diversity was a word that people could only just about spell. I was diversity. Yeah, I suppose you in were 19- then. Yeah. <laughs> but is there is, 19- is there a bigger well, leaning towards we really, it? Really, yes. And it is very much the, the buzzword. And, and I know police services across the country are really struggling with recruiting. Uh, it is less palatable to become a police officer now. I'm seeing it everywhere. The recruiting, the uh, we really, I think, in policing, recognize that we need to represent the communities that we police, and our communities are vastly diverse. So we are doing a disservice to our community by not representing them within our own ranks. Yeah. And we know if you are a a good leader, you need to have various lenses at your table. So I, I cannot see my decisions through your eyes or somebody else's eyes and the impact on their culture or community. And, and how ignorant would I be to not allow my viewpoint to be questioned? 
So it's not just equality. It's, you know, it's diversity of lens. It's, you know, the ability for those cultures to have a voice at the table. It's bringing people on onto the police service that represent their community. Um, we are still not there. No, I, I don't think we are. I, I think sometimes, and I'll go very candid, I think sometimes there is, a in this country, um, we sometimes, and I've got friends from all walks of life, but sometimes we will sacrifice quality in order to get, you know, police officers feel that, or senior management feel that they need to tick a box. Um, so they rush people through. When there are people out there, we just need to get the right person to, to do the role because they are representative of the community, absolutely right, but there needs to be an ability to carry out the investigation or, you know, be the be the right person for the role because policing isn't for everybody. It sounds no. nice. It's, it sounds great, but policing is not for everyone. No, and if we knew, I don't think we knew 30 years ago that majority of people don't make it out of this profession unbroken. No. <laughs> Uh, in some way, and I and that was never ever ever talked about until recently, and I don't think that we are transparent enough with the damage that it does to people. Yeah, and I think I think the damage is often ignored, certainly from the top level. That they'll pay lip service to the you know we, we'll have the the broken blue light thing or whatever they're doing this month, but that just grabs social media headlines because they feel that there's a, a, a need to do it. and But whether they actually buy into it, I'm not sure. Because if we did, we wouldn't have as many officers that are suffering with PTSD. We wouldn't have so many people that have gone through broken marriages, alcoholism, all the stuff that happens. It's the detritus of life, but the support isn't there. I think it's very impactful uh, with if you look at the numbers and the people that are off work and the in an item i'm not sure what it's like in the uk but we're looking at uh workplace insurance and financially take out the people financially it's costing these organizations yeah so not just that compassionate empathetic helping our folks it's it, it still is a business at the end of the day and oh, it you is. can't run it it is, and and I think what's lost is if you have one person go from a team of eight, then you're you're twelve and a half percent down, and somebody has to pick up that workload. Then it applies more pressure onto the next person, and all of a sudden you're down to fifty percent workload. And and they're not replaced. We know that. No, they're not. They're not replaced. And finances here around policing is pretty poor. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but the you know the greatest amount of money spent on policing is the wage, and I understand that, but people have to live. So, you know, where where do they want these cops to reside if they're not going to pay them a decent wage? And if they're not going to pay them a decent wage, then they're not going to join. I live 50 miles from the centre of London. If a kid wants to go and work in the financial district, they can earn themselves £100,000 a year fairly easy without breaking into a sweat. I mean, they'd be lucky to get half of that when they first join the police service. And it's a, it's a no-brainer. We can't get – so what happens, we get some very willing volunteers that want to take part, want to join, but they're not always up to the quality that's required. Standards matter. There's There's been much talk, uh, at least in Canada, about professionalism 
and uh, professionalizing the profession. And so there's talk about degree programs, there's talk about education, uh, consistent standardized training across the country, which it really is because we have one criminal code. Yeah. Um, But if you are going to professionalize the profession, then you also have to pay for that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it can be it can be very attractive, of course, but we need we are paid a, a good wage in Canada. Yeah. Uh, unlike our colleagues, even in the U.S., which is across the board. But but you see, if you go back in history, when the wage when there is a wage crisis, you will see a you'll see an increase in in some form of corruption. I think it's naive to believe that there's not going to be ramifications for poor funding. I think you pay for what you get. Yeah, absolutely. Get what you pay for. Yeah, abso- absolutely. So when did you retire? I retired uh, five years ago. And up until that point, were you still um, an active, albeit you've been promoted to inspector and you're a uh, divisional district commander, were you still an active police officer or had you become more strategic and more desk-bound? Uh, more desk-bound, but when I was running the patrol division, um, I was an incident commander. And so I was out uh, with the tactical team all the time on their calls. Uh, I made it a point of training with them every week if I could or every couple of weeks um, to wear that uniform and be on the front um, to be deployed with them uh, because you need to come from a place of credibility and you need to come from a place of the same training. Uh, I needed to have the same skill set as they did, or at least understand what it is that I was approving. Uh, ultimately, as an incident commander, all the chip, you know, the chips fall where they may, but you you hold all of that level of responsibility for yep. every single person deployed. And if you don't have that skill set, then you're doing certainly putting them at risk and doing a disservice to everyone. So, uh, yes, the answer is as much as I could uh, to stay involved. Our service is not big enough that you could be in a corner office and not be involved. And so even in investigations, working with a major case manager being involved in uh, every major case, every homicide, um, making sure that they are at your elbow. So as much as I could, yes. I mean, it's interesting because, as you say, when you when you haven't got the neighbours to call on to get the additional support, you've got to do everything, haven't you? If you get a hom- if you got a homicide that would come in, and I mean, I'm particularly interested in this aspect. Did you have a dedicated team that just worked on homicides, or was that dealt with by all the no, our detectives uh, were all cross-trained. So everyone was a major crimes investigator, sexual violence, sexual assault investigator. Um, we had very few specialized units. Of course, we had intel, drugs, um, things like uh, biker enforcement, intelligence, separate unit. Uh, at the time I was there, break, enter, and robbery, fraud, or financial crimes. But we would front load uh, everyone into a homicide everyone was a uh, major case um, trained. And did you it, use... It's efficient. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more efficient. I, I was on a major crime team, major investigations for eight years, and I had much fun. But what it actually did, it de-skilled the officers that were on the division. I mean, 
correct. We've got we're a very small um, county geographically, although we've got the longest coastline in the UK because of all the creeks and what have you. There's one point nine million people live in our county, and we go onto the borders with London and and so on and so forth. So, when I was the uh, temporary DCI detective chief inspector, I had ninety detectives plus civilian staff. And none of those would work on a homicide. None of them. Because we had a dedicated team. But because they didn't but what get... What happens when you have five homicides? Well, you, we had we had quite a few teams. But, but, the, but the thing is that we all need to deal with the sexy side of life sometimes. We, we need to have that to, to understand mm. what we want out of policing. I always wanted to work on murders, and that's, that's what I did, fortunately. So if you don't if you don't have a dedicated team and you have a a homicide where the suspect isn't known how does that work within the detective's role they assign a major case manager and a lead investigator and then uh build your team right. from the available detectives right okay and do you have fa- family liaison officers yes you do Warrant writers, family liaison. So we follow the major case model. So those positions would be filled. Right. So your major case manager, your lead investigator, family liaison, um, warrant writers, your field officers, all of those positions get filled. Right. Okay. And how long would they stay in that on that investigation? Till it's done. Till it's done. Wow. Yeah, because I mean, they and they, I, I worked on some that are still going. Me too. You know, we do. <laughs> oh, oh, they they put them to bed slightly, but they'll always have somebody that will run along. You know, make pick up any any inquiries that come in. Yes. And do they run the investigation by way of computers? We have homes here. Um, oh yes. So everything goes. So into- they use um, they use uh, major case software. Right. Yeah, because years ago we used the Cardex system when I first joined the police and they had a big rotary of, of cards and you'd write the nominals names in there and what the action was and you'd raise the action and the statement would be taken in the statement reader read. and they still I mean still do it but it goes through the home system but I think I think it's absolutely fascinating because I think it's policing is a common language it's an internet yes. it, I, if I could speak Urdu I could phone somebody up and, and ask them the same questions because they'll be doing a similar thing absolutely and we, I think we have that, uh, I think there was a T-shirt that somebody, I had one time that said, uh, cops, biggest street gang in the world. Probably not appropriate anymore. Well. But really, we are that one profession that is a relatable internationally, no matter where you are. If you walked up to a, a police car anywhere in the world and asked if you could take a picture and show them your badge, and said you're a police officer, they wouldn't – you have instant camaraderie. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we don't get to keep our badge. Do you get to keep your badges when you retire? Uh, we get a – yes, and our warrant card says retired. See, we don't get – we do not get a retired warrant card. You can't make that up. Honestly, I, I was absolutely crestfallen when I had to give my, my badge back. I don't use it. You don't you have no use for it. No. I have it, and uh, I have some – of. You know, we we hold on to some of those mementos you can see over my shoulders. Yeah, I've still I've still got some of mine. 
I mean, I'm I'm clearing out the closet and my wife has told me to make sure that, you know, I I get rid of everything that I've got to get rid of, but um, it's hard and I've got my police hats up there. And in fact, my granddaughter was running around in one of them earlier on, but it is, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. Like you say, if you walk, if you go to New York and you say, I'm a cop, I was a cop, former cop, it's an instant, oh, how are you doing? And what are things like in London? You know, and that's that, That's how it is. Do you feel that you achieved everything you wanted to achieve over your time in the police service? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, there was a series of circumstances that led, you know, around my retirement and, and promotion that I just felt like I had more to contribute, but that wasn't the place or the time. So, and I was young. So I went into, you know, consulting training. I trained police officers all over the country, actually in all over the world, um, essentially, and first responders now. And so I still am in the policing world um, and volunteering. And and so I, I really enjoy that. So I've come to realize that that is no longer a regret. Um, it's probably a good thing. But yeah, at the time I had, I didn't want to retire. It's, and could you have stayed on, or is there is there an optimum age for pension and? and no, I could have stayed. Yeah, I could have stayed. Yeah, that's that's tough. I, I I mean I I do, but I actually I quite like the idea that if I want to have tomorrow off to go and play golf. Yes. And we're still young enough to appreciate what we've got in front of us because. I don't know what it's like there, but historically here, we'd have police officers retire on a Friday and they'd keel over on a Monday because they were very, very common. Totally burnt out, and I think that there's there's a better work life balance now. Uh, and we don't live long in this profession. No, no, sadly. I uh, enjoy taking my summer off uh, because it's Canada, so we enjoy our summers. And I have a cottage on the water on Lake Huron. And I don't schedule travel or training. Occasionally, maybe one off uh, for, you know, um, clients who do something in the summer. It's very unusual. We know policing shuts down most training in the summer. That's when everybody's on vacation. So they're just trying to fill shifts. So, and first responders. So I would never have that luxury working full time or for someone else. No, absolutely. So, you have your own business now. You have your own company. Talk me through that. How does that now work? So what's interesting is um, when I started, I started in the training world with another colleague, training crisis negotiators and incident commanders, and it was comfortable. And I thought, you know, there were so many other niches that could be developed. And a lot of what we do as negotiators um is transferable to anyone. So started working in the crisis de-escalation uh, intervention techniques world, working with uh, first responders, mobile mental health officers that are deploying with, and um, kept seeing that, I, starting to realize that I had some transferable skills to areas outside of policing. I uh, left that association and, you know, I had a, once had a, a kind of a leadership coach say to me, you need to focus on just one thing. That would have been the worst advice had I taken it because now I'm working with 
Office of the Fire Marshal and fire investigators and mobile mental health professionals. And I do emergency management training in a small city, wanted some scribe, do a lot of scribe training based on incident command scribe training. It just isn't out there. And so if somebody says to me, do you know, do you think we could develop something based around this? My answer is always yes. Enjoy the challenge, transfer those skill sets, fill those small niches that people are asking for, and it becomes successful. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm happy to try. I've done lots of policy work, um, research and development, uh, you know, national models, and a small service needed their 911 program tweaked to train their operators. So why limit yourself if you enjoy that kind of challenge, which I do? No, I absolutely Give me agree. to figure out. But also the, the skills that you're describing, if you go into any industry, because the way that the world is at the moment, critical incident management could be in any office block in, in Canada, in the oh, UK. If you, you know, yes. God, God forbid, if you had an active, active shooter walk into a mall, what you want is you want the manager – and the security team to understand what they need to do in order to deal with that crisis, how they deal with somebody who's been killed in the workplace, and manage the manage the you know all the staff and, and all those types of things. And the, what you're describing is what happens in a workplace every day, but they don't know how to do it. And even things like if you're going to stand up, your you have a very robust emergency management plan, and you're going to stand up an emergency operations center of some sort, how are you managing all of that information? And when you ask, start asking those questions, we start to find all those niches. And so it's not difficult for us. We are problem solvers by profession. That's all we've done for 30, 35 years, yeah. solve problems and figure it out. And I'm perfectly comfortable, plunk me into something and, and I'll figure it out and I'll help you. And I will listen to you and maybe that's where some things, where it's become successful. Is And I will learn all about you and your profession and what your needs are. And I will talk to everyone, everyone, that this will impact. Because I, we, do, we don't do that well in policing when we talk about operational planning. And then come together with a solution that fits everyone. And it doesn't have to be huge. No. but And the training should resonate with every single person that's in the room. And if it doesn't, I'm not doing a good job. So if I, it has to be contextualized, and that's how these this training and some of the things I've developed have been successful. Because if I'm sitting in a classroom and I'm leaning back, thinking this this doesn't apply to me, or this is canned, this course feels canned. I don't I don't buy in, no. and it doesn't resonate. So what what I do and what I or what I try to do is contextualize it for the learner and speak to their experience. And I think, and then I always get asked back. So, and the reason that is, is because the feedback is good and the learners um, are seeing some value. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, because you can relate to what they're going, what they're going through having that instruction because you've been there. And that's and the training it. I wanted. Yeah. Right. And and I remember some of the best training I had because people learn from stories and they learn from involvement. I remember the worst training I've had and the best. Yeah, and we're good at telling stories, aren't we? 
we have you have stories no one would believe. Well, exactly. People, people. I always say is people pay money to do what we've done. What was the most difficult part of your police career? Probably some of the. Um, it was more internal than it was external. It wasn't dealing with the public and the calls and some of the traumatic events that we are faced with. It wasn't that. It was dealing with the internal behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. And and do you know what? You that is also an international language because when you get to that, when you get promoted, there is always a level of jealousy where people will go out of their way to try and scupper the remainder of your career. Your last, my last six months were the most tortuous part of my police service. I I can't agree more. And this is consistent with so many people who would think that they would suffer more at the hands of their colleagues than they would uh, dealing with what we see. I know criminals were treating us better, and it's it's quite shameful. And some of these people, I don't know about yes. your your particular thing, but some of the people that I was involved in have gone on to be pretty high up in international policing um, and senior, senior, senior managers within uh, metropolitan forces. And their behaviour is absolutely shameful. And that's the right word to use. What does the future look like? For Monique, what, how how are you going to progress your business? You're now flying solo, doing doing your your stuff. Do you bring other people in? How does it how's it going to work? Well, I don't. Uh, I have a a group of associates, my cast of characters, or my friends actually, who all are experts in their own space. Um, and we we're all friends. Um, well, they're all friends of mine who are very like-minded to say, you know, this came across my desk, this would be good for you. Or there's part of, I, I have no ego to say that I can do this part of what I'm being asked for, but I know a guy or a girl, I've got somebody. Yep. And so, uh, and part of it too is um, bringing them in if they're leaving policing or their own profession to build their um, audience. And so I work with these folks who are phenomenal in everything that they do. Um, build maybe their own business or work together when we need to. Uh, I like to think that I should retire again. I don't have that in me. So I'm always growing my business or learning new things or uh, expanding. Um, A lot of conference speaking uh, recently has come up, which which I enjoy. Um, And no one will ever tell you that I'm not the one who's quiet or can shut up. So I'm enjoying that, some curriculum development for in emergency management, touching that a bit. So I'm enjoying the opportunity to expand, but I don't want to have employees or this global presence, or I just want to be good at what I do and help those folks who want to do the same as me. Uh, I've become very involved with a group that is uh, assisting police in Ukraine, um, particularly women in policing in Ukraine who have no equipment. Right. So that's a recent uh, venture with an amazing group of officers who have been funding themselves to go to the Ukraine with 
5,000 pairs of boots and water wow. purification systems and body armor and been working with this group as on a new initiative to um, outfit female officers with bo female body armor. Fantastic. Uh, more. Yes. So it's very fulfilling to be able to have the luxury of time to volunteer. I've worked with our women's shelter in my city for 15 years. So that is, I wouldn't be able to do those things if I didn't have this amazing network of colleagues and customers and relationships. So yeah, I'm very lucky. I really believe that giving back and doing the right thing for, but I think that's brilliant. And if there's anybody within those schemes, I go out to 90 countries now. So if there's anybody that you think would be worthy of speaking to that, what you know, good at talking like yourself and you want to get a message out there, then please, please point them in my direction. Well, we know police support police. And in a conversation with a retired inspector with the, the rail police, uh, he was telling me what he had done and what this group had done. And, and they've been on a few missions. And he said, you know, I said, what is your biggest need? And he said, female body armor. And I said, wait a minute, I'm on the board with Ontario Women in Law Enforcement. I know all of the leaders in Saskatchewan Women in Law Enforcement, Atlantic and British Columbia, the different provinces, International Association of Women Police. Can I help? And he's, we put a plan together to get 50 vests. He has a colleague who is running a, a police academy they are seeing more and more female recruits because more male members are on the front line, but they're still managing having to police their country. Yeah. Uh, and they don't have any body armor. Uh, the academy leader is a woman. Uh, we've been connected. I, we set a goal for 50. We have had over 240 just by me reaching out to my colleagues and things like LinkedIn and, and just my own connections. And so that power of police supporting police, but they don't have, they, I, I know we are supporting our front line there, but in policing, they are, well, um, this woman said, we feel like we've been forgotten. So you have a big reach in policing. Certainly, I will get you in touch with the leader of this uh, organization. Please do. There must be somebody that's got body armor kicking around that can, can help. Anything. They need boots and socks and winter gear and everything and so it's been very fulfilling and it's a privilege to be retired to be able to set my own schedule work with amazing first responders all over the world and still be able to uh, leverage those relationships to support police in the ukraine yeah it's it's pretty good day fantastic now my next question is why are you in Canada today? Because if it's minus two, why haven't you followed all the other snowbirds down to Florida? Because it's Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and you should look at the exchange rate for the Canadian dollar. But is it bad? It is, it is. Yeah, it's bad. And this is where we live. And this is actually minus two is a beautiful day. So yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it's it's uh, our culture and we enjoy it. Although as much as, I love where I live. This profession, my uh, consulting business has brought me all over the world and I couldn't be happier. And I've seen places in Canada that I've just dreamed about seeing. And so that's another great advantage to being your oh, own it's, boss. It's beautiful. What countries have you operated in or do you operate in? 
Canada mostly, uh, in uh, Switzerland a little bit, and uh, U.S. Okay. And had some interest in the U.K. We're very similar uh, in our training. Yeah. Very, very similar, uh, the U.K., so I've had some interest. I just, I'm mostly one person, and my schedule is very busy, so, uh, and the opportunity, I've done some web stuff. Uh, it's not the same no. as traveling. No, Spent some time the in the UK a year ago and absolutely loved it. Where did you go to? Just London. But it was a beautiful, amazing trip. I think the training in policing and first responders in the UK is very similar to us. And we're very focused now on trauma-informed response, which I'm doing a lot of work with. Um, even things like the victim-offender overlap when we're talking with how we behave towards people, uh, crisis de-escalation, it is much more acceptable as a way of policing in the UK and Canada than it is for other countries. Yeah. What are the standards like of the of, of the police officer and their standards of dress? And is there an expected code of what they wear and how they have yes. their hair? Yes. So there is uh, and it, there is a code of conduct and there's, our uniforms, policies, yes, every yeah. every service. And our uniforms are not that different across the country. Um, and deportment, I mean, I suppose it's how well it's enforced, but it certainly falls under our, our procedures. For well, sure. You're only as strong as your weakest leader, aren't you? Because if, if somebody accepts certain standards... What do they then... say? Never pass a fault? Well, exactly. Because you're just leaving it for somebody else to pick up. And the, from my perspective, if they just dealt with it at the time, it would reduce the amount of rubbish complaints that I would get across my desk where somebody has just walked past a car that's parked on a pedestrian crossing by a school when all they had to do is just tell that driver to move. And then I get a complaint to deal with. And you just think, oh, my life, why don't they just... Get it, but anyway, but we're all fallible, aren't we? We all we all do things that not everybody likes. What is the percentage of Indigenous population within the police service now, and has that changed over the years? It's unfortunately way too low, way too low. And uh, I think one of my biggest criticisms when it comes to policing is we're doing uh, very little very late as and it is often a knee-jerk response to things like our truth and reconciliation commission and uh, starting to understand um generational trauma in our country and so uh, and the relationship with our first nations and our indigenous peoples is not good and very few want to become police officers there are uh, indigenous uh police services so there are first nations right Services, uh, they have their own uh, police services for their own First Nations, which is really important. But, um, yeah, well, I don't think we do a good job. Do you think that the lack of recruitment within the police service is because there is a lack of trust within the police or a lack of trust within the communities with the people that join from their communities? Of course. I can't speak for Indigenous folks, but of course generationally, there's not been a good relationship with policing. So there is no other assumption to make other than that that relationship is going to impact recruiting. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking part in this today. But before we conclude this interview, 
I just got to ask you one thing: Is there anything you'd like to add, also, or correct in relation to the statement that you've made today? No, I, I, I just encourage officers who are leaving policing to really find their path and don't assume that that all they can do is what they've ever done because we have a unique skill set that can translate to so so many things and so don't think that policing or security or that type of work is really all that's out there for you um explore and find your path you'll be amazed at how fulfilling it is wise words really Thank you so much for today. I've really enjoyed it and I look forward to hosting you when you get to London. I'm going to take you up on that. Cool. I would love to introduce you to Scott McCallum, who is a retired inspector from CN Police, who is running the uh, Canadian-Ukraine logistics plan. Absolutely. That would be perfect if you could. I'd be very grateful. He is uh, what they have done. It started off with, I was cleaning out all of my police stuff in my garage and my closets and some of this equipment was brand new. It's a shame, they won't take it back, what do I do with it? And that started this initiative to see cans, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds of equipment and tourniquets and uh, they brought bunker gear over for a fire department that was in tears. It was like Christmas, these four guys, cops, who just decided that there's got to be a way. And they uh, hooked up with the Ukrainian uh, Centre in London, Ontario, and have not stopped since. Fantastic. Well, please... I'll send you some stuff. Please do. And any links that you've got for your business, send it over to me, and I, I will get it on to the main page. Okay, I'll send you a link to my website. Take care. God bless. Keep safe in all that cold weather. You too, Paul. Bye. Have a good day. Lovely Thank you talking. For, for bringing me in. No, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.